<clears throat> Good morning. I'd clear my throat. Can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Uh, good to be with you this morning. Uh, Susan and I have had a long week of uh, being quarantined together. And I want you to know that we're still married and we're still loving, still loving each other. <clears throat> we took uh, Paxlovid, and, which is a Chinese drug. And uh, I've been craving sushi ever since and wanting to fly balloons all over the place and all this kind of stuff. <clears throat> but I think we're going to, we're on the downside of that. We took all our shots and all that, but then it crept up on us somewhere, and that's the world we live in is COVID, and you deal with that. Now, thank you for letting me be your interim pastor. That's a privilege that is beyond me and beyond Susan and I, and so we appreciate that privilege. And uh, I promise to be here when, uh, when I'm supposed to be here and to preach you God's word and to get you ready for the pastor that God has for you so that you're ready to go out in that direction and wherever God has for this church. It has a history of this church and and Gene was sharing a lot about the WMU has been a, such a large part, and I appreciate Gene and her family has been a large part of this church. And I was a member of the WMU uh, when I was a little bitty baby. My mama didn't have a babysitter, so she drugged me to WMU. And so I was a part of WMU whether I wanted to be or not. And I was a sunbeam. I know that's hard to realize, but I was a sunbeam, and probably I'd be in prison if I wasn't a sunbeam, so it saved me uh, from being in prison, so I appreciate that. Um, now, I apologize for wearing my old clouds, but my feet are terrible. Um, I'm, I have a steel rod in my big toe, so if I fall off the pulpit, just keep right on going and dismiss and go home, okay? And that, that's the way it goes. Now, I want to introduce you, uh, James Crocker Etheridge. He's over here sitting with uh, Susan and his son, Paul. Uh, he was one of my first deacons when I was a pastor at Thomaston Baptist Church in downtown Thomaston. Uh, and that was one of the best churches and places that God blessed for me. Um, they would bring me all kind of vegetables and put it in and our back door and being a country pastor is a blessing that every pastor needs to be a part of. And I appreciate uh, James. His wife, Virginia, passed away not long ago. And she was the one who taught our kids in Sunday school when they were first kids and first moved to Thomaston. Now, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to um, Luke chapter 10? Luke chapter 10. I hope you'll bring your Bibles and Hope that'll be a part. If not, you can use one of the pew Bibles. Uh, we have a Sunday school class, which are just young professionals, and they all take out their mobile device. But that is not a Bible. This is a Bible, okay? You can write in your Bible, and you can read out your Bible. But if you don't have your Bible, just take out your mobile device. Now, uh, Luke is one of my favorite writers. Uh, I wrote my dissertation on Luke, and... I love the way he remembered Jesus' stories. Jesus was a good storyteller, and I love good stories. My, my granddaddy used to sit, and uh, after we had been fishing one day, we would sit on the back porch, and my granddaddy would uh, light up his pipe, and he was a pipe smoker. A pipe smoker always has a job to do. He's always lighting up that pipe. 
And you could follow my granddaddy with those fire chief matches. He just laid a trail. But he was a railroad uh, station master. And as a station master, they would bring um, uh, things in and he would set them out. He knew Morse code and he was teaching this guy who knew Morse code. And as he was teaching them, they sent in, uh, the railroad sent in a casket. And so he called the church to come get the casket. And so um, the church sent some deacons because that's what deacons do. They go pick up caskets. But anyway, he, uh, as they came down there and they picked it up. But the guy he was training was a ventriloquist. And so he could throw his voice. And so as they picked up that casket, he threw his voice and he said, handle me easy, boys. Now, they set that casket down very lightly, had a little prayer meeting, and then they decided to pick it up again. And so um, they picked it up again. He threw his voice again and said, handle me easy, boys. And they set that casket down, and they left that station master. And my granddad had to get somebody else to come and pick up that casket and take it. Now, he would tell me those stories. And I would listen as a little boy. Jesus had this way of telling stories. Whenever he was in a conflict or confrontation kind of situation, he would tell a story. But he pressed his morals inside that story. And as you listen to that story, whatever the story was, and, and Luke writes more of the parables than anybody else. It was a window that would look at a significant or surprised person. And as you looked at through this window of the words and the situation that he gave you, all of a sudden you realize that it was not a window. It was a mirror. And it reflected the person who was listening. And it showed him things in a way that only Christ could show us things. That would reach our heart. It was amazing the way he told stories. My granddaddy told stories for entertainment. But Jesus told stories to reach our hearts. Because sometimes our hearts are so hard. It takes a story to reach down in our hearts. And hear what Christ is trying to tell us. Now in honor of God's words. Would you look at chapter 10. In verse 33, we'll start with that. And would you stand as I read for us God's word? And I'll just read a snippet of the story. Verse 33, a certain Samaritan. He turns out to be the hero of the story. And to the lawyer who was listening, it was culturally offensive. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, the others saw him, but he saw him differently than the others saw him. When he saw him, he had compassion. Let me tell you what the Greek word there is, uh, splinknoi. As the word compassion, uh, translation into compassion, it's compassion in action. Or I like to say it as devotion in motion. Amen. I've been preaching at Church of God. It kind of gets on you a while after you preach Church of God. 
So it was devotion in motion. And he went to him. May God bless the reading of his word and you may be seated. In the 1960s, there was a group who sang and they were a duet and they sang a certain song that was kind of their signature song. And they withdrew from one group to form their own group. And as they withdrew from one group to form their own group, uh, they didn't know what to call themselves. So somebody hollered out from the crowd during a concert, you are righteous, brothers. And that stuck with them. And so they called themselves the Righteous Brothers. And their signature song was one of the first ones I learned how to slow dance. And I know that's not good to admit by a Baptist pastor, but that's how I learned how to slow dance. And the name of that song was You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Oh, that loving, is that good Righteous Brothers there? And then it, at the end of the song, it says, bring back that loving feeling. Um, they were righteous in their own eyes or in their own name, but they were not righteous. And the Jewish religion in the day of Christ was not a righteous religion. There were a lot of people that called themselves righteous and they were self-righteous. But Jesus wouldn't call them self-righteous, wouldn't call them righteous. But the, what they had lost was something God wanted to implant in each one of our hearts, a sense of his love. And they had lost their love and feeling. And what was missing in that church, and they had a lot of answers and they knew scripture backwards and forward and they could argue from a place where they were and they would give right answers. But having right answers doesn't mean that you're living the right solution. And what was missing was the most important part. And God uh, said, you're not representing me like you ought to represent me. And so God sent Jesus so that we could bring back that loving feeling. And you could find it among his people. And it's not just a um, um, add-on kind of thing. It's an essential part. Paul writes about uh, to a church in 1 first, in first Corinthians chapter 13. And I use that so much for weddings. And I've got three weddings this summer that we're, I'm looking forward to. And I will use that as a part of my wedding thing, the definition of love. It's not a bachelor definition of love. Any of you watch The Bachelor? Never mind, I won't go there. It's God's word's definition of love. And it's the Greek word agape. And it's so important that it appears some 120 something times in the New Testament. You see, only God can define agape. The world has a definition for love. We have a definition of love. But God has his definition of love. And his word counts. I wrote some things down. Uh, what makes a church great? What does the devil hate? What do you look for in a mate? What do you hope for on a date? What does a child await? 
What is impossible to imitate? I thought that was pretty cute anyway, but anyway. Because God's love is essential. Now, when I graduated, right before I graduated from college, I went to um, a basic training at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And I remember the first formation we went to as we got there, the formation in front of our barracks, uh, this, our drill sergeant came out and he looked at us and he had us do push-ups and then he looked at us again and then he had us do push-ups. And then he looked at us and he says, um, I'm your new mama and I love you. And he said it, but I didn't really feel it down deep inside of my soul. And he had me doing some more push-ups just to show you, show him how much that I loved him. But they would put us in, um, they'd work us all day and you'd go to sleep at night about eight and then you'd wake up about four in the morning and this drill sergeant would come through banging that uh, garbage can. And I remember that so well. When uh, Paul said, uh, without love, you're a clanging symbol. Well, I know you're a clanging garbage can. That's what it was to me. And he would get us out of bed at four in the morning and then you'd go throughout the rest of the day. But... When he put us to bed at about 8 o'clock, there was this uh, guy that would just kind of walk around the room. Everybody else, when you hit the bunk, you just went right on to sleep. But this guy kind of walked around. And uh, so later on, we found out that he was sleepwalking. And so they uh, got him assigned out of the service. And we found out about it. He had psychiatric evaluation, and they got him out of the circus. That when word got back to the barracks the next night, there were people walking around all over the place. <laughs> I mean, they were bumping into things. There were a lot of things that were there. But you can tell the difference between what's real and what is fake. And you can't fake God's love. It's got to be real. John wrote about it more than anybody. And John says this about the church that he had been in in Ephesus. He was their pastor. And it was a church that was growing and are doing a lot of things and making things happen. But Jesus said, you left your first love. And it's not something you can just do without. And a lot of churches do that. I was in a church one time that that as a, for a priest, I said, turn around and greet somebody, and they did it, but they didn't want to do that. I could tell they didn't like that. So the lady came up to me afterwards, and she said, uh, Dr. Henry, we know everybody. <laughs> and she said, we have the love of Jesus down in our heart. And I was thinking, it's way down there, baby. It's way down there. <laughs> but you can tell. Whether it's real or whether it's fake. And more than anybody, God can tell that. Now, if you have your Bibles, look back at the scripture. Um, verse 20. I'll find it in a minute. On page over. Verse 25. Jesus is uh, talking to his disciples, and they've had a thumbs-up mission trip. A thumbs-up mission trip when they 
um, Navy pilot comes back, he salutes, and then he gives him a thumbs up when it's been a successful mission. And he has sent the disciples on a mission. It was the first mission trip. And they have shared about how God used them to make great things. And so Jesus is surrounded by his disciples. They're having a thumbs up mission kind of uh, rebriefing kind of situation where they're thanking God for what had happened. And all of a sudden is this lawyer that stood up in the middle of that. And Luke kind of sets the tone for what's happening. Verse 25, he said, a certain lawyer stood up. And he stood up and said, and behold, it's a kind of an uncertain kind of thing. He kind of came into the back of the group. Then he sits in the back of the group and he can't stand it as Jesus is talking. He's got something on his mind. So he has to stand up and let him have it. He's testing it. And he wanted Jesus to know he had the right answers. And maybe Jesus didn't have the right answers. So he's trying to build himself up by proving that Jesus is wrong. So he stood up and he said this, just in the middle of the meeting, he just kind of stood up and said, call me Alabama. (laughs) I wanted to say that. I just really was looking for, (laughs) who knew it was Alexander Shannara there that was asking that question. I think hell's a place where you watch a lot of your commercials. Amen. Would you agree with that? Okay. But God loves lawyers. I want you to know that. Uh, and he loved this lawyer. And he could have come back at this lawyer the way the lawyer came at him. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to win his heart. Because no matter what the situation, God still reaches out to us. So as he was saying that, he said, tell me, what is the greatest commandment? And he gave the right answer. He gave an Old Testament Jewish kind of answer. It comes from Deuteronomy. It says to love the Lord with all your heart and all your mind, all your soul and all your strength and all your mind. But it doesn't stop there. He, he adds to that Leviticus, and Leviticus says, and your neighbor as yourself. And it was a good answer, but again, having the right answers does not mean that you and I are living the right situation, because we can know what to do and refuse to do it. And if we would ever get to church to do what they're supposed to do, we would change this world. But there are so many that know what they ought to be doing, but they're not doing it. So Jesus said, you've given the right answer. Now put it to work. You know what to do. You read your Bible every day. You pray. You come to church. And you know what to do. And put it to work and you'll live. That's a present tense verb. Start putting into work. Let it keep working in your life. And watch when... You let Jesus do what Jesus says, he will do what he says he will do. But we're missing out so many times because we know, but we're just something comes that holds us back and keeps us. He says, well, who is my neighbor? Because he was 
kind of changing his tone. Now, my, my son is a lawyer, and every now and then he starts his lawyer tone on our phone, and we say, listen, Rusty, quit talking like a lawyer. Talk about like my son. And he changes his tone. And he says, who is my neighbor? Because you don't want to go out of your way to somebody who is not your neighbor. You want to keep your neighbor within a group that's just for you. And that, just hold that group and me and myself and my family and hold it to this kind of group that, and people that agree with me and let's hold it there. So he needed a definition of what it meant. And Jesus told him what he didn't want to hear. Solomon had a group around him that just told him what he wanted to hear. And after a while, he had a group that never said anything. Oftentimes, we need to hear what Jesus wants to tell us. But there's an elephant in the room. We know there's an elephant in the room. And we say, don't go there. Keep away from that. So Jesus wrapped it in a story and gave it to him so that he could hear it and not be defensive and not hold up that wall. So he told about a man who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He was, must have been a merchant and so he was attacked by thieves. It's a tough road to go down from Jerusalem. It's something like you go about like 3,500 feet. You wrap around this kind of, kind of like the highway used to be to Plantersville. I don't know if you ever remember that highway. That was just went around one curve after another. And that's the way it was. You got down, in fact, you got almost to below sea level, 17 miles. It was a target-rich environment because robbers could come out of the desert attack whoever it was and then go back into the desert and disappear. So here's a man that's going down the road from Jerusalem to Jericho and as he goes down, he is attacked by these robbers and they pretty well beat him up pretty bad. They take his clothes so he doesn't have any kind of identification. They beat him up so that he's half dead and they leave him there and then run off. And here's an attitude that so often is in our world. We live in that kind of world in which there are attitudes like that. I don't know how it was here, but after we had a hurricane not long ago, there were all kind of people that were pulling things off to rob you of your money, promising to fix roofs and all this stuff, and they never showed up. We live in that kind of world. There are people that call me just about every day. I think... What they do is they attack old people. And I know they love me and care about me because they call me Jawi. And they say, one told me, he said, uh, he had money for me. He was a prince from Africa. I didn't know. I'm the only prince I ever know. I didn't know princes in Africa knew me. But he knew me, and he wanted to send me some money. If I just send him my Social Security number and my bank, all this kind of things, then he would help me out. <clears throat> and I told him, thank you, but my name is Jerry. But we're living in that world, and their attitude is this, what's yours mine, and I'll take it. And there are a lot of takers in this world who will take what you have and promise you this and never deliver. We live in that kind of world. 
So as he's laying there and the robbers have left him kind of half dead on the side of the road, he's still got some life. And there's, if somebody would help him out, he could recover. But as he's on that road, all of a sudden a priest came down. A priest had been in Jerusalem. He had, that's where the worship place was. That's where the temple was. He had been part of the worship service. And he's coming down the road. By chance, he happened to be there. Maybe this man has some hope that he will stop and help him out. But it says that he stopped and looked at him. He saw him. But there is no connection here. But he saw where he was, saw his situation. But maybe he's time schedule, maybe he's on his way, maybe people were still around. Whatever his reasons, and I'm sure he justified himself by walking on the other side. And he went on his way. That was Jesus, a master storyteller. And then a Levite came down. Levites were in charge of the ministration. Some led in the music. He's also a part of the worship. These were the best of the religious people of Jerusalem of, in their day. And so they come to the man. And they look at him. Or he looks at him. And he walks on by. Maybe it's his time schedule. Maybe he's afraid. Maybe he didn't have the funds, whatever it is. So here's their, their kind of attitude is this, what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. That's a kind of dangerous attitude. Even among religious people. It is a dangerous attitude. It's mine. It's not yours. You got to leave it behind one of these days. It is not sure. But then the hero of the story comes along, and again, he is not the person of the same um, religious preference this man was. But when he saw him, something happened within him. You will not help anybody out until it connects to your soul. And that's what compassion does. It connects to your soul. And he had to do something. He couldn't walk on by. He just had to do something. And he not only just did something, he did more than something. He went out of his way to do so much here. And uh, Samaritan's Purse gets its name from the attitude of the Samaritan who took what he had, the money that he had, even though it was the next day, he didn't push it behind him and say, okay, I've done what I've done. He added another to it. And he said, here's the money for him. In that storytelling, something happened to this lawyer's heart. And he got convicted. Now, what do you do when you're convicted? Where do you go with something that God has kind of put on your heart and you're convicted? Jesus asked him this question. He realized this lawyer is kind of struggling with this moment. Which one of these three was the neighbor? 
Because it's not who is my neighbor. The question is, who can I be a neighbor to? And he turned it around. A master. And he gave the right answer. He said, the man who showed compassion. And Jesus continued by saying, go and do likewise. And maybe to me and to you, he's saying today, go and do likewise. Now, just three things that I want you uh, to kind of grasp here. One is this, that he saw the need and he met him. That's the Samaritan. He saw the need and he met it. Now, Stephen Covey uh, has written a book about successful people. And in that book, he talks about how much perspective means a lot to successful people. And he told a story about a, a man who was on a subway and his children just acting kind of crazy. And they were going over here and going over there. And there was this couple that were watching him. And they were saying, you know, why don't he do something to his children? Why don't he make them well? Why don't he do something to them and make them obey? And then the man spoke to the couple and said, I am so sorry about my kids. Uh, my wife has just passed away and we're coming back from the hospital and I can't handle them right now. And all of a sudden, their perspective changed and they saw their situation differently. Because when you have God's love flowing through your life, it changes your perspective. And you begin to see people like God sees them, and it makes a difference on what you do and how you act when you begin to see them through God's love. So the first thing that I want you to know about the Good Samaritan, he saw what needed to be done, and he did it. The second thing is he knew the price, and he paid it. Because when you're going to be a good neighbor, it's going to cost you. And it will cost you. But what the greatest cost is, not what it's going to cost you, but what the greatest cost will be, it will cost you in your heart and in your soul when you don't do it. It turns colder. And it gets colder. And it gets colder. Until finally it doesn't even bother you at all. But I like the third thing, he didn't talk himself out of it. Because often we get to those situations where God puts on our heart somebody and we're to share that love with somebody. But, you know, we're talking about I don't have time, I'm doing this and I got so much I got to do. And, and we find an excuse not to do what we should be doing and we begin to justify that in our own self. He didn't talk himself out of it. He was a different race, different religion, different kind of personalities in different sections. But God had put it on his heart and he responded significantly. Now, I'm glad James Crocker is here today because uh, it was the deacons there that taught me how to handle deacons. I still don't know how to handle deacons, but anyway, they taught me how to handle deacons. They're good to have. And especially most of them are farmers. I think, James Crocker, you drove a railroad train, didn't you, there at the paper mill? That was a good job to have. But when I was there, um, uh, when you're pastor at Thompson, you go to see everybody. When you go to the two hospitals, Boy Meridian and in Selma, 
And so I would come here and they asked me, they said, would you go by and see a black girl and her name is Ernestine Tripp? And I'll never forget Ernestine Tripp. I walked in the room and she was like 17 years old and she had tubes coming out everywhere. I mean, they were all over the place. And she looked at me with those eyes like (laughs) scared to death kind of eyes. And they told me she had cancer and only a few days to live. And I said, Ernestine, uh, my name is Jerry Henry. I'm, I'm the pastor at Thomaston Baptist Church. And she just kind of nodded. And I said, Ernestine, can I pray for you? And she nodded. Now, while I was doing this, the Holy Spirit was kind of screaming in my heart, tell her about Jesus. Tell her about Jesus. And so I prayed this prayer, God watch over her and take care of her. And the Holy Spirit was screaming, tell her about Jesus. And I walked out of that room and I'll never forget it. There was an opportunity there that God had placed in front of me. And I talked myself out of it. And I don't know if I'll ever see Ernestine in heaven. I wish somebody came along after me and shared. But I promised God, I asked God to forgive me for that. And I said, God, if you give me another chance, I'll be faithful to whatever opportunity you set before me. And through these years of being pastor, I have kept that uh, commitment that I've made to God, and I've seen God do some great things. But there are things that you can never, never go back and redo because life always looks some back. But you can go forward from this moment on and make a difference. Love is not just some of the add-on. It is essential. Would you bow your heads with me for just a moment? And I want you in your heart to just kind of open my heart, Lord. If there are some things you need to ask him to forgive you because none of us are righteous, No, not one. All of us have blown it like I did with Ernestine. All of us have messed up. All of us have had opportunities that God placed in front of us. And instead of meeting those, we found an excuse and we walked away. So would you pray for yourself? Maybe somebody that God has on your heart right now. Maybe they're not of the same uh, situation you are. Maybe they're a different situation. God has no boundaries. But he needs good Samaritans. Now, would you also pray for this church? I mean, we can do activities and we can go through the week and do a lot of things. 
My prayer is this church will be known as a caring church. That people on the streets and people somewhere else and people will hear about First Baptist Church as a caring church. And you, you have an opportunity to be that good Samaritan. Dear Father, touch our hearts today. Speak to us through stories and help us to hear your voice speaking to us down deep inside our soul. We pray for that, Father, and thank you for your love for us. Now help help us to share our love with other people. In Jesus' name I pray.